Welcome to episode number 65 of the Four Animals for Earth show, Elephants in Captivity with Yulara Nakagawa. The simple idea for today's episode is to read the Solitary Elephants in Japan report that Yulara mentions many times throughout this interview. And when we're done, funnel the injustice or pain or anger that we're feeling into the next tiny little step to help. And there's going to be a lot of ideas of what we can do to help. Let's get started. This was meaningful for me. They increased the amount of time that the keepers would spend with her because that was very meaningful to her. That was Yulara, founder of Elephants in Japan, talking about Hanako, who is an elephant who deeply inspired her journey thus far in life. And she's going to tell us all about that story here in a couple of minutes. I wanted to quickly tell you about Yulara before we get started, because she is literally the poster child for taking tiny steps and watching them add up over time and for being brave and for using her voice to fight for animals. She is, as I mentioned, the founder of Elephants in Japan, which is a group that investigates and improves the lives of elephants living in captivity. They also work hard to educate the public on elephant welfare as a whole, helping us all learn about these beings that are so compassionate and smart and loving and very, very sensitive. And so she helps uh, spread the word about that and how being in captivity affects them. She wears a couple of other hats. She hosts a podcast called the After Animals Podcast, in which she interviews different inventors and companies who are really pushing the edge of innovation around animal-free food, fashion, and entertainment. She also works with the Center for Contemporary Sciences, which is a nonprofit that advocates for human-specific research with the goal of ultimately ending animal testing. On top of all of those things, she's an editor and a journalist and a communications specialist. And, you know, these are really the um, skills that started her on this journey of going so deep with with elephants and with helping them. Yulara wrote on her blog in 2015, and it kicked off a whole series of events that brought her to the point today where she is really making meaningful differences every single day in the lives of elephants who are living in captivity. I cannot wait for you to hear her story. Let's go. Hi there, this is Brandy, and you're listening to the Four Animals for Earth podcast. This is a space where we inspire each other to take small steps every day to live a more conscious life, helping animals and the planet while we do it. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's all take a deep breath and let's get started. Your story with the elephants starts by being inspired by Hanako, who was an elephant living in solitary confinement in the Inokashira Zoo in Tokyo, right? That's right. Yeah. 
And she's, uh, she's often kind of known as the world's loneliest elephant. And it's a very sad story for her. But for you, it really started your whole journey by learning about her there and the experience that she was going through. So I thought maybe we could start our conversation today there. Can you tell us about Hanako, how she inspired you and how it kicked off your journey to, to how deep you are in helping elephants now? Yeah, I would love that. And Brandy, thank you so much for the wonderful introduction and for your kind words. <laughs> I am very flattered. So yeah, I would love to start with Hanako's story. So um, Hanako, as you mentioned, was an elderly elephant, captive elephant living in a zoo in Tokyo and in a very affluent neighborhood, actually. And um, so I had actually encountered Hanako when I was living in that neighborhood in Tokyo in the late 2000s. And one morning I was jogging in the neighborhood and I saw out of the corner of my eye what I thought was a statue. And, and I, but there's something about it that stopped me. So I kind of backed up and I looked and there was this elephant and I could not believe it. I was just like, and so it turned out it was, there was a zoo, but there was an elephant in this very stark concrete enclosure that was so still she looked like a statue at first and so I didn't go to the zoo I was very bothered by it but this is earlier on in my career and my advocacy and I just didn't know what to do you know it pained me but life went on now fast forward a few years later I found out I was reading about her I don't know it was just it was oh what I had decided is that I started to just I decided to see I work in as you mentioned communications journalism media so I do a lot of work writing about things like technology right um, and I was starting to feel this sort of like emptiness let's call it because I wasn't really focused on what's really important to me which is you know animal advocacy bettering the lives of animals in any way I can or alleviating suffering so I made a promise to myself, a pact that I was going to write about one issue surrounding animal welfare that was important to me. One blog post a week on my Medium blog, my own stuff. That was not my day job. So one of those posts happened to be about Hanako. I just remembered her in that moment. I was like, that elephant. So I did a little bit of research and I found out that Hanako had been brought from Thailand to Japan when she was just a little baby. She was two years old. On a, on a boat all by herself, taken away from her family in the wild. And she was brought to a zoo in Tokyo, an Ueno Zoo, which you'll be familiar with. And she just had such a tough life. As a teenager, she was brought as part of a traveling circus around the country. Um, you know, there are rumors that two of the companion elephants she lived with at Ueno Zoo um, were murdered essentially during the war because they had to kill all the wild animals in case they escaped. So they actually just killed them. Um, sorry, this I know this is disturbing for people, but that's, you know, that is what I found in my research. And so she had seen unimaginable and experienced, you know, a lot of hardships. And then when she was brought to this zoo, the one that I saw her at, um, she had had an accident where somebody, um, a drunken man in the middle of the night crawled into her enclosure and she got so scared she trampled him and unfortunately he died. And so as a punishment, her front feet were chained up and she was starved. You know, when really she, she had, and she was deemed this dangerous elephant, right? So she'd been, you know, so she was a very skittish elephant. 
Um, but long story short, what ended up happening is I wrote about her and I realized that she had been, she'd been kept as a solitary prisoner in this tiny concrete enclosure. It would be you in a small bathroom, right? Your entire life, um, most of your entire life. She'd been there over 60 years at this point, if you can believe it, all by yourself with nothing to do, you know? And we know elephants are highly intelligent social beings. She had nothing to do. There's literally a tire and a piece of plastic, like a, just a piece of plastic in there. And she would just stand there day and night um, in this tiny enclosure by herself. And, um, you know, I, I realized, I remember when I was thinking about her and I was gonna write the blog post, I thought she has been stuck, unable to leave this prison, psychological and physical prison, as long as my own mother, my Japanese mother has been alive on this earth. And my mom had a life. She went to school, she made friends, she left the country, she had a family, I was born. You know, she had a job and all these days, months and years, Hanako was just standing there with nothing to do and no companionship, you know, after everything she'd already been put through, you know. Um, so I just was so pained by it. I decided to write about that in the blog and I shared it on social media. And then, a, and then a, another uh, elephant advocate and retired Belgian school teacher, Rita, she's wonderful. She runs Elephant Freedom Fighters, which is a great Facebook group. She took my blog post and copied it onto an online petition. And, you know, that petition blew up. Yeah, uh, hundreds of thousands of people had signed it. But at that time, that was it. And then the next thing that happened is that, I mean, I'm going to just speed it up because I don't want to go too long. But suddenly the news caught on. Somebody in the news saw the petition. And before I knew it, every news media outlet in the world was talking about Hanako. You know, that's where her moniker was created. I think it was CNN that called her the world's loneliest elephant and everyone wanted to know about her. Um, and I think it was really because we saw how old she was as well at the time she was 69. So we knew the clock was ticking on her and it was like, let's try to get her some form of happiness before it's too late, let's free her. So I think that had a lot to do with the urgency. And then everyone was just like, you know, we need someone to speak for Hanako. So I tried to find like a Japanese celebrity or a book author or elephant expert, anyone that would be Hanako's voice because Hanako needed a voice. She wasn't able to speak, she was voiceless. Um, and, you know, it was, it, was, it was challenging. So I decided to step up at that point and just, and just be her voice. And, and it really blew up. I mean, the media was wonderful. And, and because of all of this media attention that was able to be garnered off of the petition, you know, I was able to start a crowdfunding campaign super quickly and raise some money. And then it was like, well, what do we do with that? Well, so I reached out to the zoo, Hanako's Zoo, and they were willing to meet with us and chat. So, you know, I, I brought in uh, Carol Buckley, who is the one of the first, the founders, one of the co-founders of, of the first elephant sanctuary in North America. She now runs the elephant sanctuary in Georgia, Tennessee. Um, I think she's just about to get her second elephant. Um, anyway, she, she, she agreed to come to Japan with me to come and observe Hanako, do an assessment and meet with her zoo. So off we went <laughs> and, you know, um, yeah, we went, we went to the zoo. We saw Hanako firsthand. It was absolutely devastating. Um, 
you know, for example, when, when we first went up there, even Carol was like, oh my goodness, she looks like she's made of concrete, you know? And she was, Hanukkah was out there in her tiny concrete prison enclosure. There's lots of loud noises. I said, she's very skittish. So like she was very, you know, obviously disturbed by all the noises being put out on display. And um, she just kept doing this repetitive motion. She was looking down and she just stood there so still, but she would just take that piece of plastic and she would move it, you know, in a, in a repetitive fashion, sort of in between her legs and then up and flip it and then over and over. And Carol, she's been, you know, studying elephants and working with them firsthand for decades. And so she goes, wow, she's just catatonic. She said what she's doing is she's coping, right? With the psychological stress and distress of her surroundings. And all she can do, they, them being so intelligent, is cope through a repetitive behavior. It's like when we bite our nails or rock, you know, children rock to comfort themselves, right? It's coping. And she said she just, she's complete, she's a zombie, right? And then what ended up happening is that when it was time, her, her daily exhibition time was over and they went to let her back into her indoor enclosure, which by the way, that is a huge problem in Japanese zoos and, and probably most zoos globally is that they keep their elephants indoors for like up to, usually up to 24 hours a day if the weather's bad, but often like 18, 20 hours a day in these tiny little indoor enclosures. And so they're completely deprived, you know, in that sense of their natural movements. They're supposed to move 10 kilometers average a day, right? Forage 18 hours a day for food. They only need to sleep four to five hours. Wow. And yet they're forced into this tiny indoor closure, enclosure based on human scheduling. And, you know, they just another, it's torture. It's psychological torture for them. And they're alone. So in she went into her enclosure, but this remarkable thing happened, which is that when she was for when she was pushed, it was her like routine, you know, the day the zoo was closing. So they were putting her into her indoor enclosure and Carol, you know, she's just such an elephant. She's an elephant spirit or elephant whisper. She goes running into the indoor enclosure. And I actually was a novice when it came to complex elephant behavior. So I didn't know what was happening, but you know, Carol was just observing. And then she said later to me what she had observed is this zombie elephant, when she went into her indoor enclosure, she completely changed. It was a Jekyll and Hyde. And she said that she suddenly started like showing fluid sweating out of her body. She was flapping her ear, making these huffing sounds and became very active. Okay. Um, and I was like, oh, and, and she said, well, those are signs of pleasure. She came alive. And she said, the reason she came alive when she was put in her indoor enclosure is that was the 20 minutes per day she got to interact with her keepers who she'd grown to love because that was the only sort of like companionship she had. And so for 20 short minutes a day, she would get brushed, she would be fed and they would just be with her. And she particularly liked this female elephant keeper, this young female, you know, and she said, those are all signs of pleasure. That's what they do with each other in the wild. So because she was so deprived of any other meaningful companionship, those keepers had become her family. But then the doors close, darkness, right? And that's it. She just has to wait again for that. So it was just so sad. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, the zoo met with us. We met with their vet. It was a productive conversation. 
Carol wrote a 24 point report as a result of that visit, um, you know, outlining short, medium and long-term recommendations to improve Hanako's welfare. And the zoo on the record told the Associated Press that they were gonna do those things. So it was, it was, a, it was a victorious visit, right? Yeah. Um, and so through communications and, and updating with the zoo, we did discover that they had started to slowly do some of the things that Carol recommended. One, if you can believe it, Brandy, is that in March when we visited her, um, Carol observed that in her indoor enclosure, Hanako was shivering the whole time. Okay. She's cold. So one of the simple things she said is close the garage door so she's okay. not freezing. And so they did that, you know, stuff like that. And they'd also moved the crowds further back because, you know, Carol had pointed out she was disturbed by the noises because she was a very, um, you know, kind of shy, jittery elephant. Um, and they increased, I, this was meaningful for me, they increased the amount of time that the keepers would spend with her, Aww. you know, because that was very meaningful to her. So these changes were slowly happening. And then a little over two months after our visit, Hanako um, collapsed and died of heart failure. Okay. Yeah. So that, you know, it was, it was very obviously sad for everybody that got involved and supported and we were seeing these small improvements being made for her welfare. Um, and so it was a dark time, you know. And luckily, I had the support of a wonderful organization called Zoo Check Canada. They've been in, you know, protecting captive wild animals for, I think, coming up to 50 years now. And they've done some really important work, you know, uh -huh. and made some enormous impact. Uh -huh. And um, they, they really helped. And they said, you know, we came up with some possible ways to move forward with this. And okay. so a result of that was my organization now, which is Elephants in Japan. It's been shortened. The original name is Elephants in Japan in memory of Hanako. And what we decided to do was to create this in her honor so that at, it was too late for her, but at least we could try and help some of the other captive elephants that are living in sometimes worse conditions than her. And there are about a hundred captive elephants in Japan currently, of which 12 living are in solitary confinement. So that is our focus, you know, beyond what you kindly shared to be our mission. Yeah, our overarching mission, which is to educate people and, you know, make a difference for all elephants. But you got to start somewhere. And so this is our this is what we are focused on currently. Wow. I mean, like you just said, you've got to start somewhere. And you did. I mean, that story is incredible how it organically unfolds from one thing to the next to the next. And I think there's just so much to be said within that, you know, because I think a lot of times as passionate people about helping animals, we see how far some people have gotten with things and we see a really bad situation in our own backyard. And it feels like you just have no idea what to do. But what you did was you just kept chipping away at it one little thing at a time. Like you said, when you first saw her, you didn't know what to do. And now look at where you are, you know, it's like just chipping away one little thing at a time. And I was thinking about how you said because I just want to re-say this again, because this is something that I think can really stick in people's heads, that an elephant in captivity in a small space in most zoos is similar to a human being being locked into a bathroom, 
you know, for their life, because I think that is something that we can all picture and kind of understand in terms of what a lot of these elephants are going through and why they need help and why things need to change. Um, you mentioned, I think you called it zoo check is, is does zoo check or is there a group similar that does go around right now and actively help zoos who have elephants to improve the conditions of that they're in around kind of the world and in Japan? Do you know? Yeah, there are, um, as far as I know, there are, so ZooCheck, they have done some work in terms of relocating elephants from zoos to sanctuaries. So they're, you know, they've done some wonderful work. They helped bring an elephant um, from Vancouver, British Columbia, that was living in substandard conditions down to the Paz Sanctuary in San Andreas, California. And they did the same with, I believe it was three elephants at the Toronto Zoo. So I'm not sure how much they're actually working with the zoos. I think their mandate is more so, you know, to get them to a drastically better environment. Um, there are organizations like, I think there's, there's an organization, I, it's, you know, I think this is going to lead to another question that you were you, you we had discussed earlier, which is like zoos, right? Yeah. Um, for me, it's difficult to really promote. I'm, I'm just, I don't know enough about that approach where I don't know if I can condone it personally, it. Okay. right? So yeah. obviously there's better zoos and there's bad zoos, right? Right. Um, but again, I don't know enough. I have heard that there are some of the best zoos in the, in the US include the Oakland Zoo, you know, amongst the wild welfare community. I'm not sure if they've worked with some sort of group or expertise, you know, to improve their conditions. Um, I know the Born Free Foundation in the UK has their own zoo check, which is like a program within their organization and they're great, but I think they might do some work that actually involves working more closely with the zoos than the zoo community to try and, you know, improve conditions. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I hope that's kind of helpful there. Yeah, no, it is. And like you said, it brings us to a larger question. And, and this is a question I think maybe not everyone in the world is asking, but a lot of people are, which is, are all zoos bad? Or, you know, is it okay for an elephant to live in a zoo? And I feel like, um, you know, I, I feel like what I'm hearing you say is, Ideally, no. Like ideally, we want them to be out with 10 kilometers to roam a day, 18 hours to forage. And does, does that, do you know, can that happen in sanctuaries? And is the movement around elephants in captivity right now basically with a goal of getting them into sanctuaries, as many of them as possible? Like, is that the goal? Or is there another level kind of within that of what would be the perfect situation for elephants that are currently in captivity? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's one that people in elephant advocacy battle with and consider frequently, right? I mean, to take all of the current captive elephants in the world and put them into sanctuaries, that's just unfortunately at this moment, not really reasonable, right? There aren't enough sanctuaries. And there is this sort of pop culture fervor almost amongst people that it's easy to say, just put them in a sanctuary. But, you know, um, 
a great story is about an elephant that went from Alaska to um, the same sanctuary that I mentioned, the Paws Sanctuary. And that was uh, sponsored by Bob Barker, who you know to be a champion for the animals. Um, and I met I met the the zoo uh, director, who's wonderful. So there's an example of a, a zoo director that's open, right, and um, is 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 communicating with the advocacy community at a high level. And he agreed to let his elephant, I believe, is Maggie, maybe, go to the Paw Sanctuary by plane, by jet plane, and like Bob Barker paid for that. Um, <laughs> But it costs, I believe, on average, between half a million to a million to do an an endeavor like that. So, and and that doesn't include all the time having to bring in the veterinary experts to assess the elephant prior, and then during the transport, which can be very risky. So it's, it's, I think, ideally in like a world where there were no limits and there were genies and bottles, like that's what we would wish for. But what all we can really do is that we have people like the, you know, I think his name was Pat from the Alaska Zoo, who's open, right, to making improvements where they can happen. And that's the thing is it's not like an all or nothing. Like I think to even like going back to Hanako, right? Like I know that those 20 extra minutes of, of keeper time a day meant something to her, right? So it's like, you're not, it, to me, it's like, they're the ones that are living the day-to-day, the minute-to-minute. And so if you can even make one of those minutes better for them in the interim, then that matters. And there is a lot of that happening. And that's one of the things that we've been able to see is that we, you know, so with with elephants in Japan, um, just to continue from the origin story, so to speak, that I was sharing with you earlier, um, thanks to ZooCheck and their, you know, collaboration, they're our partner organization, we were able to get in touch with um, Dr. Keith Lindsay, and he is a remarkable elephant biologist. He's one of our, you know, foremost elephant biologists we have right now. He started studying wild elephants in the Ambozeli, you know, um, jungles in, in, um, in Africa in 1977. And he was like a strict biologist, but now in the past decade or so, he's been moving towards helping the issue of animals, well, sorry, uh, elephants in, in captivity and helping to improve their welfare. And so he came on board. We were somehow able to bring him on board this cause. And he and his son, they traveled to Japan in, in February of 2017. And they did a covert investigation of 14 zoos with solitary elephants. And he wrote this 115 page report with all of these conclusions. And so, um, you know, I think what, and then we translated that to Japanese and we sent it to all the zoos and we sent it to the Japanese Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And they subsequently released a statement on their website saying we are on this solitary elephants issue and we're gonna be doing what we can to bring them together. Cause that was one of the recommendations that Dr. Lindsay made was they can't be kept in solitary confinement. I mean, that's elephants are incredibly social beings. So, you know, going back to the keeping a human in a bathroom, mm-hmm. it would be similar also to not allowing a human to talk to anyone for their entire lives, right? Like that, that level of deprivation by keeping them alone. And so um, a couple of the zoos have taken this uh, advice to heart and they've started doing things like Sunny, for instance, at the Ishikawa Zoo in Japan, what they've done is they've started like hiding food for her so she has more opportunities to forage. They've put water activities out for her and new toys and they've actually allowed her to now choose where she goes between her indoor and outdoor enclosure. So like, 
again, people sometimes will be like, that's not enough, get her to a sanctuary. But when you think about how long that could take and how much that could cost, to me, the little meaningful changes that are happening in Sunny's life, you know, they mean something, right? Like to her and that, that does matter. So yeah, that's what I would say when it comes to Ziz. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's, what's cool that I feel like I'm hearing you say is that even though there may not be like specific organizations that zoos can hire to come in and, you know, consult and tell them how to make everything better. It sounds like there's a growing understanding among all elephant advocates who are out there and coming together. You mentioned a Facebook group earlier where people come together and I'm sure there's more forums. So if somebody is listening and they feel like they've got a solitary elephant near them that they want to help. It sounds like there are different ways that they could get involved and learn and just start to pull together people within their community to put together ideas for what could be done to improve that elephant's situation that may not be a half a million or a million dollars, but would actually be, you know, a couple hundred dollars to, you know, get started with some sort of enrichment. Is that true? What I'm saying? Oh yeah. I think, you know, if everyone could just take the simplest step of, I would say, getting a bit more educated around elephant welfare and then just sharing stories with others, that would make an enormous difference. Because even for me, like, let me tell you, at some point earlier on in my elephant, you know, welfare interest, someone said to me, well, you know, an elephant is a wild animal. It's not like a cow. It's not a domesticated animal. And even that, I think a lot of people forget, right? Because the lines have been blurred. So wild animals meant to be wild. They're not meant to be caged. They're not gonna be your pet and they're not meant to be in a selfie because they need to be wild and free. That is the true core essence of their being. And to deprive them of their true core essence of their being, that is the beginning of the problem. And so like that taught me a lot. Right. And so I think even learning about that or, you know, say, for instance, I've met so many well-meaning people who go, oh, I love elephants. I love what you're doing. I actually went and rode an elephant in Thailand and it crushes my heart because I look in their eyes and I know they love elephants and they would do anything to help them. And yet I want to be like, well, it's not a horse. Let's remember it's a wild elephant. So how do you think that we had to, how do you think it got to a place where it's allowing people to ride on its back? Well, torture, right? Like that's behind every elephant ride is that they have been subjugated, like they've been subjugated to do that, right? Through physical violence. And so I think if more people knew that, then we could not support such practices. And, you know, I just wanted to mention also that when it comes to sanctuaries, unfortunately, so the one I mentioned, Pause Sanctuary, they're wonderful, look them up, they're like a real sanctuary. There's also um, Carol Buckley, there's Global Global Sanctuary for Elephants. Sorry, it's something, anyways, it's a sanctuary in Brazil. And that started by a couple that's actually trying to replicate the proper elephant sanctuary model around the world. So they go and they started one in Brazil and then they're eventually going to leave it to the people there and then go elsewhere. There's the new elephant sanctuary, elephant haven in France. They're legitimate. 
Unfortunately, now though, there are tons of non-legitimate sanctuaries that have popped up, especially in Southeast Asia, that say they're sanctuaries, but they're really just tourist traps, right? And so they're just money-making schemes. And a lot of these elephants are being brought in from like, you know, ex-logging in, in um, Myanmar or, or just, you know, through a lot of shady <laughs> ways and, mm -hmm. and they're for profit. So um, where I would recommend people go is to um, World Animal Protection's Elephant Friendly Tourist Guide. And so, and those, and so those are the legit sanctuaries. If you want to look at a legit sanctuary, the ones I named are the ones I would look at. And then if you want to find out um, about World Animal Protection's guide, then go to um, this, this, it's the URL, maybe Brandy, you could list it for people yeah. as well. It's a wonderful guide and it lists what, you know, what to avoid, what to look for. And they've actually got a list of like proper sanctuaries and non-proper. Yeah. But I would just say, educate yourself. A lot of people just don't know, right? And so if, if more people simply just knew about that small thing, we could reduce elephant suffering by not supporting those businesses. So yeah. simple. So simple. And you're right. It all just comes back to knowing because mm -hmm. it's not, it hasn't been common knowledge in the past that, you know, I think it's natural to think, oh, it's a huge animal. It's fine. You know? And, and I think that's something very interesting to learn about elephants. They actually shouldn't bear any weight on their backs at all. And, you know, as humans, we just think, oh, like you, you think of them as a horse or something. You're right. And not at all, like not at all. It's actually really painful for them to have weight on their backs. Right. And that's just one little tiny fact of so many Another thing that I saw you mention somewhere is that there's a common misconception that elephants are happy and dancing when they're doing some of these behaviors that are actually not at all happy movements. Um, can you describe something like that really quickly? So if people, you know, like if you're at a zoo, uh, how can you tell if an elephant is feeling stressed? Are there, are there behaviors that they show that are I'm stressed right now, behaviors. Oh yeah, absolutely. So this is called stereotyping or stereotypical behavior. And as far as I know, and this, I don't know if this is scientifically verified, but we, we typically only see that in captive elephants, this type of behavior. And so that would be something like I shared with you earlier about Hanako, who was doing that repetitive motion with a piece of plastic. And really she's just coping, as I said, it's no difference than someone trying to comfort themselves by rocking back and forth, you know, or, or playing with their hair. You know, when you imagine humans or children even better in a nervous, uncomfortable situation, they close up, right? And they're, they're really just so intelligent that they're trying to like, um, I would say, again, cope, right? With a very stressful situation. So as you mentioned, there's, there's elephants that um, do this by bobbing back and forth. And so what they do is they bob back and forth, back and forth, or they might rock in certain directions. And they'll do this for extended periods of time. And so sometimes, unfortunately, visitors who don't understand how to interpret wild elephant behavior, like I didn't before Carol was able to explain the flapping of the ears is actually, you know, not anger, that, that's happiness, right? They look and they go, oh, well, that elephant is, is happy. It's, it's dancing and it's anything, but sadly it's the complete opposite. So, you know, I think um, that is definitely something that we've seen. There's also um, some elephants that will, there's Fuko, which is one of the solitary elephants in Japan. She does this 
thing where she goes in a meaningless, repetitive pattern over and over in her enclosure. We've got a video on YouTube showing it. So she goes, walks to her at the top of her, just a tiny little cage, looks like a prison. She like taps her nose and then she moves over to the other side. She backs up and then she does the same motion over and over going from corner to corner of her square enclosure. And that's again, a stereotyping pattern. So they can all have different ways of manifesting, right? Um, but I mean, most of the time, and, and this is essentially, this is seen in captive, this stereotyping behavior is seen as cap in captive wild elephants that are kept in substandard enclosures. And they are associated with boredom, anxiety, frustration, and depression. And they mean that their biological and behavioral and social needs are not being met. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So biological behavior and social, because I think that's something that we don't tend to, to necessarily understand about elephants as well, is that they are really complex beings like we are as humans, you know, extremely social. Um, you actually physically can see them mourn the death of people within their um herd, I guess, people, not people. <laughs> well, maybe people too, if they, I, I'm sure if they had grown really close to a keeper, that would also be a very painful process losing them. Um, but yeah, just, just, um, just highlighting that, like you said, there are so many, so much information that's starting to come out now about how complex animals really are as sentient beings, just like we are as humans that I think maybe historically was kind of cast off as this animal is an animal and they're different from us. And as we're learning constantly, right? All animals, all different kinds of animals, not only elephants are actually a whole lot more like us than we thought they were, which I do think really helps put that into perspective of them living in that captivity and being such a large animal um, living in that captivity. You mentioned there's a hundred elephants in captivity in Japan. So to me, that just probably makes the number mind blowing if you, if you take it out to a world level. And it sounds like there's different levels of um, places that animals can be living. You know, they can be in captivity. They can be in sanctuaries that aren't really sanctuaries. They can be in sanctuaries that are actually amazing sanctuaries. And then there's kind of like this worst case scenario where they're living in solitary in captivity. And there's different levels of help that we can provide to animals in, in all different kind of levels of what situation they may be in. Um, we're going to recap a lot of the stuff that you said, and I have a feeling I'm going to gather a lot more links from you uh, in terms of how people can educate themselves. But if you were to leave us with one simple idea of how someone who's listening and is feeling kind of moved and fired up to want to be able to help elephants, whether they happen to be living near them or on the other side of the world, um, what one simple idea would you share for people to get started today if they're feeling passionate about it? Yeah, I love that question because really it's what it comes down to. We all set out, we see like we were talking about earlier before we started recording, we just know all of the immense challenges animals, you know, our non-human animal um, companions and beings face on this planet right now. And we just get overwhelmed, right? And it's just like, well, where do I even start? How can I actually help? You know, you hear about elephants today, it's gonna to be another issue tomorrow, right? 
Um, so I love that question. Just super quickly, I wanted to go back though and mention just with the Hanako story. So um, when Carol was observing Hanako and she was talking to her keepers, when Hanako came into her indoor enclosure and started doing all these huffing noises and act actually becoming an elephant for a second, um, we started talking to them with an interpreter, her keepers, Carol did. And the keepers, when Carol was like, she's, she loves you. She's happy to see you. They said, oh, we thought that was anger. We thought she was angry with us. So think about the tragedy and that miscommunication, right? Wow. And the misinterpretation and how that flipped once they knew, right? The, 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 what they could give her. And so again, education, not just like educating your friends, but education between like groups, I think is so important. And that's really what we're trying to do with elephants in Japan is bridge the gap. And as you mentioned, Keith Lindsay's a re full report is completely free and available on our site. And it, yes, it's about solitary elephants, but it applies to any elephant in a captive situation. And he does outline short, medium and long term recommendations. And people can really learn a lot from that. So just going back to the one action, like or the one action, I would say like, anything helps. And that's the thing, right, is that I, I honestly think signing a petition does help. I can tell you that much because petitions do work. They do. So if you can go and sign an online petition, you know, that makes a difference. And that's one simple thing you can do today. Another thing like, you know, even just cooking for me a plant-based meal for a friend, to me that helps, right? Because we get to enjoy each other's company. We have a good meal and they learn something and expand their, their mindset. Um, I just think setting out to like help the elephants is great, but it's, it's, it doesn't have to be that, right? It just worked out for me, but I was doing a ton of these tiny actions and to avoid compassion, fatigue and paralysis. I think it's important to just keep those wheels turning, you know, and, and in order to do that, it's taking tiny actions and again, educating yourself, talking to a friend and sharing that information. Right. And you just never know when that opportunity is going to come along. So um, I don't know if there's time, but like, I just wanted to share the story about when I was 11 years old, I was a little kid in elementary school in my grade six classroom. And I, we had a substitute teacher that day. And for some reason, I, I came across my first National Geographic magazine. And I was like flipping through it. And there happened to be this big, beautiful feature about African elephants in this edition. And so I, I started learning about elephants. And I was like, wow, like, they, the mothers and the grandmothers and the aunts, they live with the little babies, and they teach them everything they know, and they travel together. And you know, they nurture each other and they mourn each other's deaths, you know, and it was just so amazing to me. I think elephants touch people in that way, right? Because they're so social and so emotional and they're just so high integrity, you know? And then unfortunately, I, as I was flipping in and wonderment of these elephants, I got to the unfortunate reality of them being shot down from helicopters and killed for their tusks. And as an 11 year old, I, something in me welled up. And I think this was my first moment of advocacy, right? Because it was different. I loved animals, but it was like different. It was like this, this fire. And I ran out of the classroom crying and shaking. And the, um, the substitute teacher came out to see what was wrong and to console me. And so I said, I just remember thinking like, why would somebody kill a mother or a grandmother? Like a being that means somebody, something to others 
for the equivalent of my tooth or my nail, you know, it just infuriated me. And that's when I saw injustice, I think for the first time. And it just, and I just, I was like, I, I'm so furious, you know? And, and I remember the teacher saying to me um, that, that day, well, you know, Laura, when you grow up, you know, you can help the elephants. And, and that was it. And after that, you know, I stopped eating meat. After I read about factory farming, I like, you know, tried to teach my friends about cosmetic testing and the cruelty and how to find like non-cruelty, like not tested on animal labels on there. Like, so again, I was doing all these little things and it's not like I set out to help the elephants. It just worked out that way. But I like to tell that story because maybe like an intention was set, but it's not like it, like I set the intention it happened. I was doing all these other tiny little things along the way. And then I almost got lucky and I found this issue, right? That needed my help or my voice. And I think that can happen for all of us if we just keep our wheels turning. You know, so that that would be my my sort of takeaway for that that one. <laughs> <laughs> I I love that, and thank you so much for sharing that story because I think there is something that that lights a fire within us, and you know, whatever it is, whatever you hear, I mean, somebody could be listening to this today and feeling a fire, and I think to your point and the theme that you've shared through the whole conversation is that. It doesn't have to be this big monumental thing that you do. You just start doing little things that make a difference and add up every day. And it's like, if you, what I love about your story is that you felt that fire around the elephants and it wasn't until years later that your life brought you back around to something to do with the elephants. And in the meantime, you did all these other things like making a difference and helping. And I think every single one of us can do that. So I, I love that story. And I love that you've stuck with that theme throughout our conversation today and sharing it. And I'll have to tell you, my mind is spinning with all of the little ideas that I have that I'll put into show notes with links and things from you, because I just think there are so many things that listeners and people who are watching can pop over and start digging into more after this. Um, So that'll all be there. Thank you so much. And really, yeah, I mean, it's funny how we set that intention in the beginning of this podcast and it's a little spiritual for sure. And I'm not that much of a spiritual person in the sense that I I focus like you, you know, I'm very analytical and like, I used to be a journalist and I'm all about the facts, but I do think that all we are all connected in a sense. And so, you know, maybe I didn't help elephants or wasn't able to for 20 or some odd years between that day where I cried and I said I was going to help the elephants one day. And eventually I'm so blessed and uh, that I'm able to have some tiny, you know, impact there now. But if you help one animal, I feel like you help them all, right? Like it's, we're all connected. It's all, you know, we're all a, they're part of an energy, right? To be honest. So I, I do think it's it, that, that, is another thing I just wanted to add in, you know, it does matter. It does matter for that being right. And it matters for the whole, the whole energy of, of, of what we are. Yeah. Yeah. Of the collective, you know, it's interesting because I was thinking like any animal and including a human, you mentioned this earlier, but it's like, if we can make one minute of that other animal's life better, 
it's worth it. And that could be another human when we're driving down the street and we're mad that they didn't take their turn at the stop sign. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's like every little bit. And especially I think for most of us, it's a lot easier when we talk about, you know, non-human animals, because we feel that compassion, but every little bit that we can go out of our way to make one minute of their life better. It's so worth it. Right. So totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that. Um, let's just finish up with what is the best way for people to get more information? Like I said, I'll have a bunch of links in the show notes. If somebody wants to get in touch with you, um, or learn more about elephants in Japan, where do you want to send them? Yeah. So we do have a website, which is our main source of, if you wanted to go and check out that report, we've also got a brand new update, um, available on the website that talks about, uh, where we've come so far since we launched on World Elephant Day in 2017 with that massive report and, uh, you know, sort of like the progress we've been able to make, but also like infographics about like the elephants that remain solitary and some of the progress that has been made. And so you can find that all on the website at uh, www.elephantsinjapan.com. And then we're on all the social media channels. So you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and uh, I think Twitter, although that's more popular right now, the Japanese crew people okay. um, and YouTube, our videos on, on YouTube. So if you follow all of those channels, you can keep up to date in case we have like a call for a petition that you could sign. Um, or, you know, we'll, we always put all of our updates and activities there. So yeah, if you could find us there and follow us, then that would be wonderful. We'd appreciate it. And then always, always we're looking for volunteers with any skill sets. We're still a pretty tiny grassroots organization. We're just like trying to hustle up and, you know, make more of an impact. Obviously the pandemic has been challenging. So if you, you know, are able to volunteer at any capacity, reach out to me. You can do that through the contact form on the website or our social media channels. And I would love to hear from you and work together. How much do you want to go volunteer with you, Lara, right now, <laughs> right? How much are you feeling that I am? I'm looking at my calendar, trying to figure out how to fit it in. Oh my goodness. I just love you, Lara's sentiment and her focus on what we can actually do easily right now and trusting that that will continue to add up to make a bigger difference and to move the needle so much further. Uh, reminder, the simple idea for today's episode is to download that report, Solitary Elephants in Japan, that Dr. Keith Lindsay did with Yulara's group. Uh, there's also the updated report that she mentioned, so we can download that and read it after. And then we're going to take all of these different features feelings and emotions that we have right now and funnel those into some simple actions. I captured a ton of simple ideas from the conversation and post research that I've done in the show notes. So you can find everything there, which also includes links to all of the organizations that Yulara mentioned and more educational materials. There's so much there. So you could go to foranimalsforearth.com slash podcast slash 65 and you're going to find all 
all of that information. Uh, I am going to take next week off for Thanksgiving. So I will be back in two weeks and I'll see you then. In the meantime, yeah, read up on solitary elephants in Japan and let's fire, fire this energy into something、uh, productive to help these elephants. I will see you soon. Bye. <laughs>